W233AH Monticello. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report highlights the autumn equinox. Then, Stephanie Phillips visits the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York, and speaks with educator and lead designer Andrew Faust. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about permaculture. And we salute old-time fiddler Donna Lee Greger with a musical tribute. She was a Honesdale, Pennsylvania native and loved homegrown tomatoes. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. King Charles II and his son, Prince William, made a surprise visit this morning to the miles-long line of mourners waiting to pay respects to Queen Elizabeth in Britain's Parliament building. NPR's Frank Langford reports. The crowd cheered the king as he arrived to shake hands and exchange pleasantries with mourners, some of whom had begun lining up in the cold just after midnight. Prince William asked people in heavy coats if they'd been able to stay warm overnight and apologized for the long wait. While this is officially a time of national mourning for the Queen, it's also been an opportunity for the new king to travel around the country and shore up support for his reign. The Queen was enormously popular, even more so than the monarchy itself. A YouGov poll earlier this year found that 75% of Britons had a positive view of her, while only 42% viewed her son similarly. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. President Biden flies today to London. He and First Lady Jill Biden are to attend Monday's state funeral for the Queen. At least 24 people are reported dead and scores more wounded amid fighting between the Central Asian nations of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. At the same time, a ceasefire between the former Soviet republics, nations Azerbaijan and Armenia, appears to be holding. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. Isolated clashes that began along the Tajik-Kyrgyz border earlier this week broke into large-scale fighting late Friday before the two sides negotiated an overnight ceasefire. It was unclear what kicked off the violence, although the two former Soviet republics have long-simmering tensions over border disputes that date back to the end of the USSR. Both sides have traded accusations of targeting civilian infrastructure, and Kyrgyzstan's emergencies ministry says it has evacuated over 130,000 people from the area. Russia, which maintains military bases in both countries under a regional security pact has offered to mediate a diplomatic solution to the crisis. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The nearly 50 migrants from Venezuela who were brought to Martha's Vineyard this week are now at a military base on Cape Cod. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he arranged for them to be flown from Texas to the resort island. Simone Rios from member station WBUR interviewed some of them. He said they'd been brought to Massachusetts under false pretenses. Several of them told me they were approached by a woman who promised to get them to a sanctuary area where they'd be taken care of. It's unclear who this person was and who she worked for, but she coordinated the flight to Massachusetts. So they knew they were coming here but they didn't know they were going to this wealthy, secluded 
island until they were on the plane. Simone Reyes reporting. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Stephanie Phillips visits the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York, and speaks with educator and lead designer Andrew Faust. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about permaculture. And we salute old-time fiddler Donna Lee Gregor with a musical tribute. She was a Honesdale, Pennsylvania native and loved homegrown tomatoes. But first, here is Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. For Farm and Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. At 9.03 p.m. on Thursday, the sun will cross the celestial equator from north to south. This event is known as the autumnal equinox. There are a few interesting things that occur during an equinox. The sun will rise due east, will set due west, and will be directly overhead at the equator at noon. The autumnal equinox is a perfect day to determine due east or due west from your yard. The point where the sun meets the horizon at sunrise or sunset will be due east or due west. Also, the length of day and night are nearly equal on the equinox. We will see 12 hours and 9 minutes of daylight on the equinox. Each year, there are two equinoxes. One occurs in late March, and the other occurs six months later in late September. The equinox marks the midpoint between the sun's lowest path across the sky and the sun's highest path across the sky. The Earth's axis is always tilted at an angle of about 23.5 degrees in relation to the Earth's orbit. However, the tilt's orientation changes throughout the year. The equinoxes occur when the Earth's axis is perpendicular to the sun's rays. With the sun on a southern trajectory in the sky, the sunrise will be coming later in the day, and the day itself will be getting shorter. The sun will continue to move south in the sky until late December, at which time it will reverse direction and head north. On Thursday, we will say goodbye to summer and hello to autumn. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. designer and educator at the Center for Bioregional Living. Andrew's going to explain the philosophy of permaculture, that is, how to observe and work with local ecosystems to create sustainable food production, water use, and waste disposal. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. A lot of what I've been working on in the last 20 years has been an educational program that I run through the Center for Bioregional Living. And the center is also a project that Adriana Magana and I started here in Ellenville to create a campus for 
our Brooklyn graduates to be able to get hands-on training. I wanted to have a country campus where they could learn both city applications at our sister campus, which is at the Brooklyn Commons on 380 Atlantic Avenue, where we have a rooftop garden and we have rainwater catchment and black currants and blueberries and grapes and lots of nice plantings on the rooftop garden at the Brooklyn Commons. It's an urban campus where our classes are being offered. And the beauty of those perennials in that rooftop garden is that even when the owner, Melissa Ennin, is doing very little with the garden, the blueberries keep enhancing to improve yields, the grapes do, the currants do, the raspberries do. And this is really some of the wisdom behind permaculture in encouraging us as gardeners, as growers, to partner more with plants that are perennials, plants that continue to come back on their own without us needing to reestablish them every year. And why did you settle here? A lot of it had to do with my life journey brought me to Brooklyn to be with Adriana Magana, who I'd met through my permaculture training program up in Vermont. She had a very well-established community in Brooklyn and had run various venues that are would be called house party scenes, places like the Happy Birthday Hideaway, places like Rubulad, places like what folks up here might be familiar with, the House of Yes, which has just moved up here recently from Brooklyn during the pandemic. And Adriana was part of the Lower East Side Squat movement as well. And so I wanted to come to a place that was more urban and to work with her collaboratively in the work that I'd been doing off the grid in uh, Pocahontas County in West Virginia. So I moved to a 17-acre homestead where I built a straw bale house in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. So I specifically moved to Brooklyn to be with Adriana and to bring permaculture design to the city. So you've practiced something called permaculture. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Permaculture is a methodology that starts with a group of writers from Australia, Bill Mullison and David Holmgren, and they write the first books that coin the term and that create the, in a sense, canon of material that is then added to by many writers and practitioners after their writings, which are in the early 70s. Bill Mullison and David Holmgren are both responding to industrial agriculture, and so permaculture is a practical, ecological approach to providing all of the real material needs that a society or a community might need from biological systems and transitioning a petrochemical fossil fuel industrial society to be something that's more nature-based and more ecological. What other practices of the agribusiness industry really make you mad and make you pursue this, you and the writers that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you bring up emotional response like anger, because interestingly, Bill Mullison in some of his later in life interviews, Bill died about five, six years ago in his late 80s. And the interviewer asked him, Bill, what is it that motivates you to do all this life-changing, expansive work that you've done in permaculture? And he says in his thick Australian accent, anger. <laughs> and many of the viewers got upset for the fact that they thought he was going to be a little bit more touchy-feely, crystal-squeezing, new-age kind of character. But in fact, Bill and the tradition of permaculture, and part of what I appreciate about it, is that it comes from this viewpoint of thinking 
if you're not angry, then you're just not paying attention to what's going on in the world. Permaculture is a activist advocacy solution set that is uniquely edgy in that it is broad enough in its focus that it is approaching redesigning the entire infrastructure and society from the ground up from the understanding that the present system that we live in is completely debauched with no real vestige of integrity and that what we need to do is reconfigure our complete economy from the ground up with a more diversified, decentralized, and biological way of doing things. Can you mention specific practices that you think are really, really harmful? I would say, really, for me, I would root the systemic problem that most needs to be addressed that is practiced with industrial farming is started by the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations with the Green Revolution, as well as the land-grant universities, which still... I have to say, sadly, dominate most of the agricultural advisory work that's given. Much as I like aspects of Cornell Cooperative Extension's work, they generally are advocates of chemicals and industrial modalities. And so I would say that the thing that most upsets me is the land-grant university program, the Green Revolution program, and the destruction of traditional ways of farming by the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations with the World Bank and the IMF Fund and the structural adjustment policies that they've hobbled them with. When you say the Green Revolution, I think GMO, Monsanto, and Roundup, because that probably may be what, what pushed that revolution. GMO stands on the shoulders of the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution predates GMO because the Green Revolution is technically when the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, along with Monsanto and DuPont, move into developing countries and are able to, through the World Bank's structural adjustment policies, strong-arm them into planting monocultures of hybrids that it can only be grown with pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and hybrids, and petroleum-based fertilizer. And so the Green Revolution is that package. GMOs came about because the hybrids were failing from the pest pressure they were getting because of being so pumped up on all these chemicals. And so then they had to genetically engineer Roundup Ready soy because regular hybridized soy was dying from the doses of Roundup it was taking to keep the pests that they had now bred as super pests from being able to wipe out the soy. So the Green Revolution is more the systemic problem. GMOs are just the latest kid on the block that emerged because of the failings of chronic and constant chemical applications that bred super weeds and bred super pests. Don't you need special techniques, though, in order to basically get around this and live sustainably without those kinds of innovations? Only if you want to maintain business as usual. So in our technocratic society, we tend to look to keeping things the way that they are and just trying to green them up a little bit and cut it and coast with the way that we are already used to. What I mean by that is the solution is diversified, appropriate scale, ecological modes of producing food, producing energy, producing building materials. Right now we live in an industrial society and in an industrial economy and in a globalized 
economy. 90% of our food doesn't come from anywhere close to where we live. Even if you look at Vermont and Hudson Valley and the most foodie cultures in the Northeast, the numbers at best might be 13%. So we're talking about 90 plus percent, maybe 87% of what you consume comes from 3,000 miles or 10,000 miles away, nowhere close to where you live. That to me is the main flaw of the present food system, not whether or not we use chemicals or industrial methods. It has more to do with the fact that we depend upon a globalized import-export infrastructure in order to have potatoes on our table at night, in order to have the basics of our food be provided for. We have enormously inordinate amount of fossil fuel inputs and transportation inputs just to bring food to the table in the American economy. And that is the real issue that we want to address. It's not that it's challenging to do things ecological. It's that the present system does things in such an abusive, extractive, and exploitative way that if you didn't resort to these incredibly noxious chemicals, you wouldn't be able to get any yield. But if you begin to do a bit of a carbon footprint analysis, a bit of a fossil fuel consumption analysis of your average pound of food, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization, it's about 10 gallons of oil to grow one pound of food that clearly the best way to achieve international food security and provide all the food for all the people in the world has nothing to do with GMOs, has nothing to do with industrial methods. This is according to the United Nations and the Food and Agriculture Organization. Their position on it is that the best way to feed the people of the planet is with what they describe as agroecology. Well, agroecology is basically university speak for permaculture. And what it's describing is agriculture that is applied in a way that makes ecological sense. Now in this country, the challenge is that we have a labor and a profit-driven version of farming. We don't want to spend too much on labor and we want to make as much profit as possible. If that is your approach from a business management viewpoint, then it is difficult to decentralize agriculture to make it ecological. So the challenges of the industrial system are real, they're substantial, and they're making us food insecure and very vulnerable when it comes to severe catastrophic natural disasters that will break down the industrial system. And that food insecurity is what we're wanting to address with permaculture. Isn't there a kind of umbrella organization for learning, for research, and for teaching this kind of sustainable agriculture? Not really. It's a pretty decentralized movement, and in a sense that's mainly its strength. It has some weakness aspects to it, but I would say the decentralized, more autonomous character of permaculture educational programs was all along what Bill Mollison, who created the core curriculum, wanted philosophically and pedagogically. We are endorsed by the organization that I think has the most relevance in North America, the Permaculture Institute of North America. Their acronym is PINA, P-I-N-A. They're a consortium of designers who have been working in the field for 30 to 50 years. So they did a good job of getting people who were East Coast, people who were West Coast, people who were the Midwest to all be on the board for the Permaculture Institute of North America. Then internationally, there's a group called PRI, the Permaculture Research Institute, and they are probably your best known international kind of hub for networking and for listing yourself as a graduate of a permaculture certification course. 
but technically nobody regulates or oversees certification courses. We're basically the only people who teach certification programs in the entire tri-state area. So it's very different from the organic food certification process which the U.S. government endorses. Well, to give a little bit broader background on organic certification, many people misconstrue organic certification to be something that's unique to the USDA organic certification. And I think it's important to balance that tendency to focus on the USDA organic and recognize that, in fact, certification of organic products predates USDA's form of it by many, many decades. And that, in fact, if you look at many of the more popular organic product lines that are out there, like Cascadian Farms Berry Jam, you'll see that if you look at the jar of Cascadian Farms Berry or Bionaturi Jam, you'll see that they're triple certified. Oregon Tilth, OCIA, and USDA Organic. Now, why would you bother to be triple certified? Well, because anybody who's an old school foodie knows that OCIA and Oregon Tilth are a lot more stringent than USDA. And so, well, it is true that USDA Organic in some ways may be watered down or dominated the organic certification process. It has lots of integrity. So there's many reasons why I still think it's very important for consumers who buy over-the-counter products when we're out of the growing season and we're not able to go to farmer's market and with a smile and a handshake get reassurance that somebody doesn't use chemicals. I don't need a grower at a farmer's market to be certified to trust that they're growing good quality food where they're not using chemicals if they tell me that. Where it does matter and where I think it's invaluable is as a consumer buying retail products at a place like, let's say, Health and Nutrition or at the High Falls Food Co-op or at a Hannaford. Certified Organic is the most meaningful label on the shelf. Doesn't matter if it's GMO-free, doesn't matter if it's paleo, doesn't matter if it's vegan or gluten-free, it does matter if those are values of yours, but in addition, you really should be paying attention to the fact that the things you're buying are certified organic. Someone wants to learn more about permaculture, where do they look for information? Do you have a website? Yeah, our website is a rich trove of exploration for people who go there. We've got video libraries, essays, a blog, and lots of information about classes that we're doing. It's The site's name is permaculturenewyork.com, and New York is all spelled out. So now you know what permaculture is. My permaculture expert today has been Andrew Faust, lead designer and educator at the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville. If you have ideas for future Now You Know segments, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. This is your show host, Rosie Starr. I'd like to take this opportunity to highlight Donna Lee Greger, who recently passed from this life. Donna Lee was a member of Steve Jacoby's Old Time Fiddlers Band from Equinog, Pennsylvania. 
Donna Lee was a native and prominent resident of Wayne County and loved homegrown tomatoes. Let's listen to her now. Well, there's nothing in the world that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes. Up in the morning, out in the garden, pick you a ripe one, don't get a hard one. Plant them in the spring, eat them in the summer, all winter without them. It's a culinary bummer. I forget all about the sweating and the digging. Every time I go out, pick me a bacon, homegrown what it like be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy. That's true love and homegrown tomatoes. Now you can go out to eat, that's for sure. But it's nothing a homegrown tomato won't Put them in a salad, put them in a stew You make your very own tomato juice Eat them with eggs, eat them with gravy Eat them with beans, pinto or navy Put them on the side, put them in the middle Put a homegrown tomato on a hot cake griddle Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes What it like be without homegrown tomatoes Only two things Money can't buy. That's true love and homegrown tomatoes. If I was to change this life I lead, I'd be Johnny and Tomato Seed. Cause I know what this country needs. Needs a homegrown tomato in every yard you see When I die, please don't bury me In a box in the cemetery Out in the garden would be much better I can be pushing up homegrown tomatoes Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes What it like be without homegrown tomatoes Only two things money can't buy that's true love and homegrown tomatoes Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes What it like be without homegrown tomatoes Only two things that money can't buy That's true love and homegrown tomatoes Thank you, Donna, for your music. Being in the audience, listening to your music was always a divine experience. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, educator, and lead designer Andrew Faust from the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country and financially supporting Radio Catskill public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.
Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hi, Angela Page from Folk Plus. On the next show, I will be airing songs about relaxing and slowing down. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need that kind of reminder. That's the next Folk Plus. Hope you'll be listening. What you hurry? Why don't you slow down? Relax. What you worry? The world will still keep going round. Take a little break. Hi, I'm Tim Bruno, Radio Catskill General Manager. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Planned giving is another way to support the station. In consultation with your legal and financial advisors, you can name Radio Catskill as a beneficiary in your will, estate plans, insurance policy, IRA, or living trust. Your generosity will help assure the financial viability of this community treasure that's important to you. Email manager at wjffradio.org to learn more. Planned giving, your sound legacy for Radio Catskill. Good morning. Welcome to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg. And with me today is writer, filmmaker, actress, and mother, Toby Poser. You may have previously heard Toby on the show talking about films she and her family have made right up here in the Catskills. Today's show is a love letter to America. After all, tomorrow is July 4th. In September of 2020... Toby, her husband John, and daughter Zelda set off in their truck, pulling a 27-foot mini Winnebago travel trailer across the varied landscapes of America. Toby refers to this as Road Trip Redux because they had done this once before, traveling from California to the Catskills, with the end result being their first film, Rumble Strips. But that was not during a pandemic. Toby's going to 